coming in that we will be having the Lord's table in uh, a few minutes. And what we do is basically still continue our regular um, expositions, but then make the exposition a little shorter so that we have a little more time for the actual breaking of bread. And I think today, also because of baptism, we'll try and see how we will manage our time. I'll just read the first verse of um, uh, Amos and chapter 3, and then we will uh, go through chapter 3 and chapter 4 together uh, this, this evening. Uh, so let me quickly read Amos and chapter 3, Verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. A quick reminder of the ground that we have covered. The series we are going through is entitled uh, Major Lessons in the Minor Prophets. Major Lessons in the Minor Prophets. And so we're going through all the 12 Minor Prophets, one after the other. Knowing how much ground that is, we are deliberately galloping along, swallowing great chunks at any one time. We have already seen how the first four of these Minor um, Prophets were before Israel went into captivity, the next four were during the period when Israel was in captivity, and then the last four was when Israel came back out of captivity, but obviously their situation was well below expectation. It was not anything like what it once was. So that ground is the ground we are covering. And so far, we have uh, seen God uh, speaking through Hosea, God speaking through Joel, and now we have God speaking through Amos. And as you will see, the messages continue to be, stop what you're doing or else I'm coming to judge you. So it's always a warning message that is coming. If you don't, I will come hard on you. And as we come into Amos, you can't miss that. Uh, we've noticed, for instance, that Amos used to be a shepherd who in due season was called to be a prophet. And in the first two chapters, which we looked at together last time, it was judgment upon judgment for different nations of the world. And I just want us to quickly notice that by picking one after the other. So in chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. We read in, in verse 6, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. We see in verse 9, that says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, and so on. So we've got Edom, we've got the Ammonites, we've got Moab, 
we've got finally Judah and Israel in chapter 2, verse 4 to the end. And what we noticed already last time was that whereas the sections on the other nations were very, very small, when it came to Judah and Israel, it was a larger chunk of the prophecy that Amos was giving. Already we saw, therefore, that God in sovereignty will punish all the nations that disobey him, but especially his own people. His own people. And it is that last part, especially his own people, that in fact the whole of chapter 3 and 4 is dedicated to. As we've already noticed in verse 1, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel. So he's back to the people of Israel, and I want to repeat, it's them that he speaks to right through these two chapters. What is that saying to us? In one sense, becoming a Christian is escaping punishment, isn't it? It's escaping hell. When you become a Christian, you definitely will not go to hell. The Lord saves you. The Lord preserves you. So often, uh, we, we, we tend to um, concentrate on that. That becoming a Christian, therefore, is being saved from God's punishment. But then, as I hope to show in a few moments, that's largely in eternity. On earth, becoming a Christian is to expose yourself to God's chastisement, peculiar chastisement, because we are his. And because we are his, he knows that he will not punish us with the rest of the world. It is in this life that he wants to deal with our sin because he wants to make us more and more like Christ. And so the, the job-like experiences are more often for the people of God for the purpose of sanctifying them. And that's what we see in Amos chapter 3 and chapter 4. It is God saying essentially, because you are mine, I'm going to punish you. Meaning, if you're not mine, it would have been a different story. But because you are mine, this is what I am going to do. So let's begin then by considering this unique relationship this unique relationship that is there even between Israel and God. Verse 2. <clears throat> you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. That's the very reason why Israel would undergo punishment. It is because they are the people of God. And when the statement says, you only have I known, we obviously know that it doesn't mean God does not know any other people on the planet. 
The word known there is in terms of knowing with affection. Knowing in the sense in which Adam knew his wife, Eve. It is a special relationship that is there. And that's what God is saying here to the people of Israel. That because I have this special relationship with you, that's the reason why I must punish you. And that's exactly the way it is in the New Testament now with the Christian church. The Christian church is referred to in 1 Peter chapter 2 as we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. There is a very special relationship that God has with the church, with those individuals that he saves. We are not like everybody else. We are not. Or, as it is put in First John and chapter 3, First John chapter 3, I love that one because it answers the question, if we are so special, how come the world doesn't seem to notice it? And this is the way John answers. First John chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. There it is. We are children of God. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. In other words, look at Jesus. I mean, you can doubt that we are God's children, but you can't doubt that Jesus was God's child. Well, he came into this world where they're bowing down like reeds by the seashore. No. They rushed him to the cross to get rid of him. So that should not surprise you if the world does not recognize how special, special, special you are. God does. And so he goes on to say, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, meaning the Lord Jesus, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So the very first point there, which God was seeking to convey to the Israelites, was that he had a special relationship with them, hence the chastisement that he was about to bring upon their lives. Then Amos basically begins to, to justify his own ministry among them. Justify it. And basically, it, it's uh, the, the situation where, you know, people are saying to themselves, look, things are going to continue as they are. Come on, guys. This is the way we've grown up. There might be difficult times and so on. But to be speaking about punishment, 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 and so on. Come on. Shut up. And so, Amos is basically saying, there must be some reason why we are burdened with this theme of punishment. There must be a reason. And this is the way 
he puts it. He begins with natural examples. He says, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? The answer is no. Now, in each case, the answer will continue being no. But you will soon see the point. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? The answer is no. Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? No. Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Again, the answer is no. Does a snare suddenly spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing, when nobody has put a foot into it? The answer is no. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Again, the answer is no. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? There may be a little bit of reluctance there, but that's where Amos is driving. You've been saying no, 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 no. Well, you better say no this time. That when any disaster finally comes upon the people of God, God himself has said it's time for me to finally hem in these people. It's time for me to take out the rod and spank them. This is the time. So that's all he's doing. He's going from the natural examples to show how they are fulfilled in the spiritual reality. And it is out of that, then he goes on to say, verse 7, For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. In other words, if disaster is going to come on a city, you know what? He will burden his prophets with it. And that's the reason why the prophets failed to keep quiet. And finally, speak out. And he's basically saying, don't blame us. Because before disaster comes, he reveals it to us. So how can we keep quiet? How? And what is that which we have come to know and hear about? Here it is. The lion has roared. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? There it is again. The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? In other words, we can't help it. We can't. I mean, you've been in a home where suddenly there is some noise in the backyard that sounds like other thieves have jumped in or there's a car accident or something. I mean, you don't sort of just listen and fall asleep again. You, you can't. The thing is, you shout, you scream, you, you call everybody's attention. It's, it's just a natural thing to do. And he's saying here, God, the lion, has roared. We can't help it but to come out and start warning everybody, guys, guys, God is coming in judgment upon us. Our sins are about to be paid for. Come on, and so on. We can't help it as those 
who are prophets. And I think, brethren, this is true, not just for the prophets of the Old Testament. It ought to be true, first of all, for those of us who have a calling to the preaching ministry. But remember, we're being told about evangelism as well. Evangelism, we have come to know this truth, going out to people to share it. Surely, once we know what God says in this book, how do we keep quiet? How? As though life is going to just continue going as though everything is okay. In the church as well, when we know that there is sin and there's backsliding and there's compromise and there's spiritual decay, the pulpit must be a place where a preacher unburdens himself and burdens himself, especially if during the week he is in the Bible. Surely after that, he should be able to say, thus saith the Lord, so that God's people hearken to what is being said. It is false prophets who spend their time saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. It's false prophets. It's false prophets who have the, the, the tendency, especially in today's world, of just uh, predicting the results of soccer matches. The lion roars, brethren. The lion roars in order for us to be able to respond. For the Israelites, the message from God was... Uh, one that makes you say, I'm glad I was not one of them. Because basically his message to them through Amos was this, that I'm coming to so punish you that there will be very little left of you. Very, very little left of you. It will be almost annihilation. Almost. That's what I am coming to do. Look at the way he puts it in verse 9 to the end of chapter 3 of, of Amos. Verse 9 to the end. <clears throat> Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, so these are enemies that are being told, arise, get ready, to go and destroy the strongholds of the Israelites. And say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her, that is, within Israel, and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Now, we, we saw this already in uh, chapter 2 that one of the things that God really had against the people of Israel was their violence towards one another within Israel itself. Their lack of justice, the oppression of, of others, the weaker individuals, and so on. Uh, the immorality that was there. That's what 
God was also punishing apart from their idolatry. So he's saying here, I'm summoning those strongholds to come and deal with this fortress here because they sin inside the fortress. Therefore, says the Lord, the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Okay, so Ashdod, Egypt, and other nations are coming in to destroy. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues, notice what is remaining here, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. I mean, that's almost gone. Almost gone. It's like somebody coming to visit you when your entire house has gone up in flames. And when they see what you're remaining with, it's the corner of your bed. Yes. Everything else has gone up in smoke. As the Bimbas would say, Mapusukeni. You've really survived by the skin of your teeth. Is this the only thing that has remained? Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish, notice the comprehensiveness, the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. I mean, literally, everything. Where you live in summer, and where you go in winter, all that I'm coming in to destroy. Imagine you were sitting there and listening to Amos speaking. The answer is, the lion has roared. Because when a lion jumps on you, yes, we will come and pick up a few pieces. Maybe your shoes. Maybe your hair. A few bones here and there. The lion has done its bit. Thankfully, because these are the people of God, God did not destroy them utterly. Because this is meant to be chastisement. It's meant to say, stop going down the path of self-centeredness. Stop going down the path of sin. Stop going down the path of idolatry. Turn around. You are mine. As we already learned earlier from First Peter, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. 
or a people of his own possession. You ought to live out that kind of life. What a challenge. <clears throat> Before we reach the end of this section, God brings out the level of mockery, the, the, the level of corruption that had become rife in Israel. On one hand, it was morally bankrupt, but on the other, still upholding religious activities, religious worship. And when I was reading it, I was saying, that that's often the case with those of us who claim to be Christians, isn't it? That from Monday to Saturday, we can live like the devil himself. And then Sunday, we pick up our Bible, dust it, and go to church. And if you've got a sort of, you know, that kind of uh, song leader, you're also even going like this, you know? Really enjoying, enjoying. But come Monday, right back into a life of self-centeredness, sin, and idolatry. Exactly. So what he's going to talk about here did not end with 500 B.C. It's, it's the ongoing sin of God's people. Listen to this. Hear this word. You cows of Bashan. Now, obviously, he's not referring to cows. It's people. Even when he says, who are on the mountain of Samaria, it's the people there. Because he goes on to say, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husband, you, to your husbands, bring that we may drink. In other words, when the wives are saying, come on, bring the alcohol. Let's, let's, let's drink our heads off, and so on. The Lord has sworn, there it is, by his holiness. God cannot change. He's a thrice holy being. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's how he's worshipped in heaven. His spirit is a holy spirit. His heavens are of the holy of holies, it's, it's the real tabernacle or the real temple. The Lord has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead. You shall be cast out into Hammon declares the Lord. Now listen to them. Come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgression. And in the same voice they are saying, bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them for so you love to do, O oh, the people of Israel, declares the Lord. The Lord is saying, that's what you love doing. On one hand, you are saying, come, let's sin. Let's enjoy ourselves. And then on the other, come, bring the sacrifices. Let's offer them to God. And God is obviously saying there, 
I can't have that anymore. Because I am holy. I am. And friends, we need to realize this. That God is not just interested with what you do at church on Sunday. He is interested. There's no doubt about it. But he's not just interested in what you do on Sunday. He's interested in what you do throughout the week. How you relate as husband to wife and wife to husband. How you relate as parents to children and children to parents. How you relate with your servants, your maids. How you relate to your neighbors, your workmates, your classmates. How you relate to those who are needy. Those who need your justice or your help. That's where we spend most of our time. How we relate as males to females and females to males. Whether there is purity, deliberate purity there among ourselves. He's very, very interested in that. You can't throw away his laws, throw away his commandments, and then just say, let's sin, and then say to yourself, come Sunday, we will go to church. You can't do that. That's not the God of the Bible. And that's the reason why he says here, I need to move in. I need to put an end to this mockery. And then finally, at least for today, the reason why he now wants to move in in this big way is because he's already been firing warning shots. He's already been firing warning shots. But the people have not been responding to those warning shots. And again, often that's true. By the time God's judgment falls hard, on his child, that child knows that there was sermon upon sermon, there was one difficulty upon another, smaller, that were coming into my life, and my own, my own conscience was telling me that this is where God has a contention with me. But I would go, ah, forget it, ah, forget it. Until finally, God says, okay, I'm now coming down in such a way that it will be visible to all that I have come down hard on you. From verse 6 to the end of chapter 4, that's basically what he is saying. He's saying, look at what I have done, and you never repent. The first in verse 6 is famine, famine. He says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. The next is drought in verse 7 and verse 8. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another, 
city to drink water and would not be satisfied. And listen to this. Yet you did not return to me. Well, he brought in disease and he brought in locusts in verse 9. I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Did they repent? Listen to this. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Well, he threw in a plague. He threw in war. Listen to verse 10. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. And I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Alas, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I mean, this level of stubbornness, stubbornness, just continuing in sin reminds me of only one person and we know what happened to him pharaoh because god would send one plague after the other and he would sort of at a certain point say, okay 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 i stop and as soon as the lord with, removed the plague what was i thinking no, 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 i'm continuing and on and on and on until god finally said okay Okay. Let's now move in permanently. And Pharaoh's entire army was destroyed. I'm not sure whether he himself survived, but definitely his entire army was gone. He adds this aspect in verse 11 when he says, I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So in some of the cities, there was an actual overthrow of those who were in leadership. And you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. I think we all know that picture. A brand plucked out of the burning. That piece of the mattress that you saved from the house when everything else went up in flames. That's the way you ended up being. And yet... You did not return to me, declares the Lord. Seven things, seven punishments. And you know what that means in the Bible. Seven. There's famine. There's drought. There is plant disease. There is locusts. There is plagues. There is war. There is overthrow. The next is closing down business. Verse 12. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. That's the final encounter that is coming. Prepare to meet your God because I have sent 
warning shots. You've not amended your ways. You've continued this double life, religious on one hand, wicked on the other. You're not turning my way. I'm now coming in. And hence the, the words that Amos is well known for. I think you've heard those words before. Prepare to meet your God. Except we normally use them for evangelistic campaigns. <laughs> it's actually God's people in stubbornness who are being spoken to. Prepare to meet him. And the emphasis is on who he is, as we notice in verse 13. And simply, he is the awesome God. He is the awesome God. Verse 13. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. In short, you don't want to meet him in judgment. You don't want to meet him when he decides, I'm now moving in to chastise you. You don't want to meet him that way. Well, friends, the title of my message is Our God Will, in Electing Love, Will Punish His People. The Lord, in electing love, will punish his people. He didn't say all those things to all these other nations that we're looking at in chapter 1 and chapter 2. But he comes to his own and he says, I will punish you. Because you are special to me, I will punish you. If we had mothers in here with little children, and the little children are now in the lobby there, the foyer, and they begin misbehaving and disturbing your peace in here. I'm telling you, if a mother gets up and goes in there, the child that will cry will be which one? The child to that mother. <laughs> that mother will not bypass her own child and start dealing with others. No, no, no. It will be my child that will be either held by the ear or the back or whatever it is and taken and will hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's a special relationship. A very special relationship. It's not out of hatred. It is out of that special and unique relationship. That's the way life is. So even here on earth, unbelievers sin every day. We know that. And in one sense, the holy God hates that sin. It's a thousand times worse when his own children do that. Because he has a special, special, special relationship with you. Remember, as we shall be seeing in the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, that's why he died. 
to make you his own, to make you special. He didn't just choose you in eternity. He died for you. A huge price. He took the best of heaven, his own son, to take your liability, to die your death. That's how special you are to him. Separating you from the rest of humanity completely. How can you, how can you now want to be like everybody else? How? How? Hence he's saying, I can't take this lying down. Prepare to meet me. I'm coming in like that mother. I'm coming in to deal with you. Oh, brethren, don't wait for that. Rather, instead, let thoughts of Calvary, as we shall be seeing in a moment, be the ones to bring you to genuine repentance. Let thoughts of Calvary, the death of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, that he enacted before he went, let that melt you. As you think in terms of the price that had to be paid. Because you are his. Let that ultimately convince you that you are not like everybody else. That in the light of such a price, you cannot give yourself to Satan and to sin and then pretend on the Lord's day that you are his. May it be that as you think of him broken and dying for you, as he showed through the breaking of bread that you will say to him, Lord, forgive me. I see now that my kind of life does deserve chastisement, serious chastisement. Spare me. Forgive me. Give me a fresh start. In case you haven't gotten bread and uh, the cup at the back, just raise your hands and the, the deacons and ushers will bring them to you. In the meantime, let us pray, thanking God for his word and for the meal. Let's pray. Eternal and gracious God in heaven, often as we point fingers at your people, of a previous dispensation, the Israelites, we easily forget that they probably had a greater excuse than we have. Because for them, it was animals that were being slain. For us, it's God's own dear son. Oh Lord, forgive us. 
Forgive us especially for our continual stubbornness. Despite the many ways that you plow around us and fertilize us to use the picture of the fig tree in the Lord Jesus Christ's life on earth. That we might bear fruit. Forgive us for our stubbornness. For still living in secret, sometimes even public sin, sometimes even so stubborn a sin that we are willing to do it arrogantly. Lord, forgive us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his death on the cross. Thank you for it being shown through the Lord's Supper. Father, as we eat of this bread and later on drink of the cup, we pray that you bless these elements to our edification. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, nobody raised his hand, so I must... Oh, there we are. There, I've seen a hand or two this side, please. Um, is there a song we're singing? Okay, so there should be a song. I'll be the worst person to start. My gifts lie in the water here. <laughs> uh, I think I have. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. And then we'll...
In the same way, after supper, the Savior took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. It was basically signifying again that we are his bought with a price, the price of his own blood. Let's remember that when temptation is coming our way. He purchased us with his own blood. Let's drink it together in fellowship. I'll hand back to Mr. Botta. We thank the Lord for his words to us, and also we are grateful to him and praise him for the fellowship meal we've had together. Let's stand and sing that Remembrance song according to your gracious word, this will I do, I will remember you. Let's stand together and sing it in closing. In prayer.
shall we bow our heads and pray together. Our sovereign Lord in heaven, we want to thank you for this day. What a great day it has been from its beginning up to this moment. We want to thank you for the message that we have received in the morning, but also for the baptisms that we have experienced Today, for as far as we can remember, we have baptized the largest number uh, ever since this church was established. We pray for those that have been baptized, asking our Father in heaven 